Man, it's, uh, it's been so great to, uh, to be with you guys for the past three weeks. Help me welcome all the campuses, uh, west, north, downtown, northwest. Welcome, guys, online campus. Great to have you guys with us this weekend. Grateful we get to do this together. Uh, my name is Mike, in case we never met before, and it has been an honor to be with you all for the past three weeks. One of the highlights of my summer, actually. And uh, we, we've been uh, unpacking what we've been calling the big three. Uh, faith, hope, and, and love. If you missed the first two, you can catch them online. We talked in week one how God's faithfulness is his gift to us, and our trust is our gift back to him, and how God is faithful through every season of our life. Last week, we learned that there's a lot of things overrated in this world, but hope is not one of them, and that there's hope for every single one of us. And today, I would like to wrap this up by taking us all to the optician's office and pick out some glasses. Uh, some corrective lenses. You, you've seen one of these, right? These uh, eye charts in a doctor's office. Anybody like me when you're sitting in the eye doctor chair get real indecisive? When they go, better or worse? A or B? One or two? Oh, can you go back to A? I'm not real sure. I think it, it might have been, been two. You know, anybody else like that? Uh, one time I was doing, doing a physical and the doctor was going to do the eye chart thing and he said, I'm, I'm going to step out for a minute. I'll be right back and we'll do, start with your eye test. So when he left the room, I memorized the bottom line of the eye chart. I mean, not even the bottom line, the very fine print at the very bottom of the chart that said, uh, you know, I memorized that. So he comes back in, he goes, okay, stand over here and tell me what line you can read. And I went, uh, copyright 1957, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He goes, that's amazing. I went, no, E, that's all I got, man. E is about all I got. Because I have been, um, I've been a nearsighted uh, for a good part of my life. Anybody else nearsighted? They call it myopia. Uh, yeah, I've, I've worn a pair of glasses or contacts since I was in the sixth grade. Uh, nearsighted people can't see things uh, far away. Now, they can see things up close, uh, but, but things in the distance are a little foggy. I had LASIK surgery about 15 years ago, 12 seconds on each eye. I got up out of my chair, and I could, I could see, like, it was amazing. I could see the clock for the first time since the sixth grade. Uh, and my, my myopia has kind of been corrected. However, uh, from time to time, I still struggle with a little uh, spiritual myopia, let's call it that. It's where as long as it's about me, I can see it really, really clearly. I mean, I see it pretty well up close. I, I, can, get, I can get pretty self-absorbed. I can get pretty self-centered, very self-focused, because that's how spiritual nearsightedness uh, tends to work. Your life is pretty good, but those in the distance... I mean, come on, their needs, their hurts, their desires, their issues, they can just remain foggy. They can stay out of focus because as long as I can see my stuff up close, as long as I can see my life clearly, that's all that really matters. I mean, God, who, who needs a worldview anyway, you know? Who needs to think about global poverty and racial reconciliation and sex trafficking and hurting people that are out there somewhere? They got their problems, I got mine. So through the years, I've had to ask God to do a little LASIK on the eyes of my heart and correct my spiritual myopia. Anybody, anybody else farsighted? Uh, you got a pair of readers sitting around your house? Anybody got that going on right now? Even though since LASIK surgery, I can read license plates like three miles away, uh, I can't read a menu at a dark restaurant. My up-close vision has gotten worse, so I'll slip on a pair of these. Re I, got my, I got my flashlight app out on my phone the other night. I got the menu going, okay, see what I want like that. Anybody else like that right now? You can't see up close. Now, again, spiritually speaking, 
This, this is a condition where we can see other people's stuff from miles away. I and mean, we can dissect their, their flaws and imperfections from, from 100 yards away, but we can't, we can't see our own stuff up close. I mean, you can see clearly the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you're unable to see the log in your own. It's that inability to see your stuff. And when you get to the point where you're no longer asking questions like, like search me, oh God, is there anything in me that's out of sync with you? Is there anything in me that needs to change? If you refuse to pray that kind of humble prayer, eventually you're going to end up with, let's just call them blind spots. Those are uh, things in you that everybody else can see but you. Maybe a little pride, maybe a little envy, maybe a little insecurity, some irritability. My wife, Debbie, she has a car that has those uh, blind spot monitors on the side mirror that lets you know that something is out there that maybe you, you can't see. And I'm telling you, it comes in really handy uh, when I'm in L.A. traffic. And spiritually speaking, I think we all need a blind spot monitor in our life. We need an honest friend or two to help us navigate. I got some guys in my life that I've asked to point out any blind spots that they see in me, and they have. And honestly, it's kept me from wrecking my life and other people's lives. Then there's this condition known as, I'm not sure about the exact medical condition, but it's a, a, a stigmatism. It's a distorted perspective. And I don't know, but it seems like a lot of people in our culture suffer from this, where, where they're, they're looking at life, they're looking at other people, assigning people's worth based on size or shape or ability or disability or beauty or occupation or color of skin or financial status or political leanings. It's judging other people based on cultural norms or on our own skewed thinking. And when we judge people, we stop seeing them for the priceless masterpiece that God created and loves. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, blind guides. Oh, they could see, but they had astigmatism. They had distorted perspective. I mean, one day Jesus heals a guy that's been born blind, a guy who was surviving on handouts that came his way. When Jesus stretches out his hand and heals this guy, all the religious leaders could see was a violation of their quote-unquote Sabbath laws. They could not see the presence of the kingdom of God in their very midst. They could not see a person of enormous worth and dignity in front of them. They couldn't see hope in his newly opened eyes. They couldn't see a reason to celebrate with some poor beggar. They only saw a threat to the religious system that propped up their own sense of spiritual superiority. They looked at the same man Jesus looked at, but they couldn't see him in the same way that Jesus did. Helen Keller once said, eyes that cannot see, they might be healed. But eyes that will not see, they can't be helped. And that's why a self-righteous heart is the most dangerous of all spiritual conditions. I, uh, I love to do construction stuff. I've been renovating an old house for about six years now. And uh, I saw a slip on a pair of these. In fact, I just wore these a, a few days ago. I was ripping some lumber on a table saw. Uh, Debbie gets on me because she says I don't wear them enough. Uh, but I think I wear them too often, to be honest. Again, spiritually speaking, it's being able to see okay, but just, you know, remaining safe. Just, I'm not going to get involved, afraid to be vulnerable, afraid you might get scammed or used. So you slip a pair of these on your heart 
to protect yourself from the messiness that compassion sometimes brings. Now, I think we need to be discerning. I think we need to be wise. But honestly, at least in my own case, sometimes it's just a cover-up for a lack of courageous love. See, no one has ever seen quite like Jesus. Not far-sighted, not near-sighted, no, no astigmatism, no blind spots whatsoever, tremendous peripheral vision. But even more than that, Jesus saw, and I'm going to go old school here, he saw things in 3D. You guys ever been to a 3D movie? You know what I'm talking about? It looks like things are coming at you from the screen. It's a fact, right now, you guys look like you're coming right at me. Uh, but Jesus saw the world in 3D because he looked through the eyes of love. And according to God's word, love is a 3D kind of thing. And I want to give you the three Ds of love today. The first D is this. Love is a decision. Do you know that? Love is a decision. Contrary to popular belief, love is not an involuntary act of the hormones. It's a voluntary act of the will. I mean, our culture is all about love, right? And bookstore shelves are sagging beneath the weight of all the volumes of romance novels. Hollywood's cranking out love story after love story. How many love songs are sent out every night over the airwaves by Delilah playing music for those who are looking for love? You know, love songs like Ed Sheeran's, you know, I'm dancing in the dark with you between my arms, barefoot on the grass. You look perfect tonight. John Legend's All of Me loves all of you. That Clinger song by Katy Perry, just because it's over doesn't mean it's really over. And if I think it over, maybe you'll be coming over again. Um, and one of, one of my all-time favorites, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. I'm thinking, you need a, you need a restraining order on, the, on this person, right? You know, my, uh, my journey of love started in the fifth grade. There was a girl sat in front of me. Her name was Kathy. And I had the biggest crush on this girl. I was so in love with, with Kathy. And on Valentine's Day, and I, they might even still do this in elementary school, but we would uh, bring Valentine's cards for everybody in the class. And, uh, and especially that special someone in our class. And we would make, we'd take these sacks and we'd cut out like a goofy looking doily heart and paste it on the front. And, you know, stick to hang the sack on the front of our desk, and then they'd play love songs, and we'd walk around the room and put our Valentine's in everybody's sack. Well, I'd grab my sack at the end of the day, and I took it home, and I dumped it out on my bed, and guess who's I'm looking for? Yeah, I'm looking for Kathy's. I found it, opened it up, and there it was in number two lead pencil. I love you, Mike. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the next day I chased her at recess. I threw rocks at her. I, you know, the way you show affection when you're a fifth grade boy, that's, what I, that's all I knew, you know. Well, my dating techniques changed, thankfully, when I got in high school. And uh, I remember going to a movie with this girl uh, and sitting in the movie theater. And I wanted to hold her hand so bad. She's sitting there with her leg crossed and her hand kind of sitting on her knee. And I look over her hand like, I got to hold her hand. I got to. But I was shy. And I, honestly, I would go into countdown mode. In my head, I'd go, come on, bro, you can do this. Come on. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 10. Now, it would take me forever before I had the courage, but I would reach over and grab her hand. And we, oh, when we interlocked fingers 
And we rubbed thumbs together. Oh, man. I was so in love with this girl. I remember the first time I kissed her, it didn't last that long. I didn't care, man. I kissed her. And I floated all the way home. I don't know to this day how I got in my driveway. Have you ever done that? I just got home and went, wow, I'm home. I don't know how I got here because I was so in love with this girl. Three years later, that same girl walked down the aisle of a church, walked up on a platform. The preacher asked a question. I, I said, I do. And she said, I guess. And we kissed each other and we walked out of that church as husband and wife. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is what love is like. Three years later, I watched that same girl go through 36 hours of labor to bring our first child into the world. And that's when it hit me. Oh, I think that's what love is like. See, love's not based on warm feelings. Love is based on your will. Love is a decision. It's not this feeling that you fall in and out of. It's a verb that you choose to do, even when it's hard. You know, Jesus not only saw the blind beggar or the outcast leper or the paralyzed, the broken, the outcast, the, 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 the left out, the confused, the oppressed, not only did he like feel compassion for them, he chose to act. He chose. He decided to love them because love is a decision. You know, Jesus warned us about the last days. He said this in Matthew 24, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. He's just saying people are going to become more and more nearsighted, more and more myopic. Because unless you and I intentionally focus our lives outwardly, we're going to become more and more self-centered, self-focused. That's just the way that old sin nature gravitates. I'm just thinking, may that verse never be true of us. When evil and the consequences associated with evil bring pain and suffering into a family, into a city, into a nation, into a global community, the people of God step up and choose to love even more fervently and more selflessly. The early Christians were known for this. The thing that was most written about the early followers of Jesus was this. These people love everybody. Now, you may have seen this before. But a second century historian named Aristides sent this investigative report back to the Roman emperor about these people known as Jesus followers, as, as Christians. This is what the, what, the, what the report said. They do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make them their friends. It's become their passion to do good to their enemies. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Every one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as over a real brother, for they do not call one another brothers after the flesh, but they know they're brothers in God. If they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed for the sake of Christ, they take care of all of his needs. If anyone among them is poor or comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they will fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food that he needs. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians, and this is their manner 
of life. And gang, these people didn't even have a Bible yet. All they had to go on was that Jesus, the one who came back from the dead, had said, a new commandment I give you. Love others as I have loved you. These people internalized what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5 when he said the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. You know, a lot of us set personal goals, and, and to reach those goals, we have to get intentional about them, right? Like you say, I'm going to eat right, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to read more, I'm going to get better grades this semester, I'm going to spend more time with the family, I'm going to learn something new, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to quit, quit drinking, I'm finally going to get organized, I'm going to get out of debt, whatever. Good goals, worthy goals, noble goals. But check this out. 1 Corinthians 14, let love be your what? Highest goal. It's saying with careful thought, and an intentional plan of action, let love be your highest goal. Work harder at that than anything else in your life. Whatever choices you make throughout the day, start your day by asking, what would love have me do today? Get intentional about it because love is a decision. And then along the way, look for opportunities to do that because second D is this, love is always a demonstration. Love is a decision, and love is a demonstration. It says in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, don't just pretend to love others. Like, really love them. My son Derek, uh, when he was in fourth grade, I went to school to eat lunch with him. I show up. My wife Debbie is working in the cafeteria as a teacher's aide at the time. I walk over to Deb, and I say, hey, what's up with Derek? Because I looked at, looked at a table, and there was Derek and this girl sitting there at the table all by themselves. And I thought, first I thought, way to go, Derek took me to fifth grade. Way to move, man, fourth grader, way to go. And uh, Debbie said, I can't even look over there. I want to start crying. I go, why? She goes, that's the girl everybody in the class makes fun of. They say she's, she's poor, didn't have nice clothes, she doesn't smell very good, and that, that she doesn't make good grades. So everybody just makes fun of her. Derek's the only one in the class that will eat lunch with her. I went, oh, man. And I looked at the other table, and all the kids were crammed in the other table. So I didn't go over and sit down. I just waited for him to get home. I met him at the school bus stop. He got off the bus, and I walked him up the street. I still remember this so vividly. Put my arm around him, walking up the street. I said, hey, man, I was, I was at a, I stopped by school today, and I saw you uh, sitting with that girl at lunch. I just want to tell you, buddy, I am so proud of you. I said, why'd you do that? He looked at me with the most innocent fourth grade look and said, well, Dad, did, did, didn't you say in your sermon you're supposed to love everybody? I went, yeah, yeah, I said that. I didn't think anybody would do it, but yeah, I, 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 I said that. He just figured it out. Don't just pretend you love others. Like, really love them. Let, let, let me show you uh, the Greek word for compassion. It's the word spalagna. Say that with me. Spalagna. you got to say it from way down here. Spalagna. It sounds like you had some bad Taco Bell and you splocknot all over the place, right? But that's where the word comes from. It's that stirring in your gut. It's that pit in your stomach that moves you to action. It moves from your eyes to your heart to your gut to your mind to your hands to your feet to your wallet. And you go, man, I just got to do something. 
Jesus tells a famous story known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's about a guy who has spalachna. He comes upon this dude who's been beaten up, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road to Jericho. And a couple of religious folks see the guy, but they cross over the other side and pass by him. But this Samaritan guy comes on the scene, and he feels that churning in his gut, that spalachna, and he stops and helps the victim. He actually does something. So at the end of the story that Jesus tells, he asks a young lawyer in the crowd, he goes, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had spalachna, who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, well, go and do likewise, because love is a demonstration. You know, like many of you, like we did in our service, I've been praying for the people of Afghanistan and the people of Haiti this week. I mean, both are going through so much, and I think we're all looking for effective ways that we can actually tangibly help in those situations. Uh, Our family spent uh, time in Haiti through the years. Uh, My daughter Jody actually lived there for a year, and uh, we have a deep affection uh, for those folks. And uh, I remember a few years back taking a group of business guys and some student athletes to Haiti. We were laying block on an orphanage and uh, we were covered in concrete and sweat and dirt and they were playing with kids. It was so cool to watch these guys just come alive serving, serving other people. And lots of little kids were waiting in line to visit the dentist for the very first time. So there's a little bit of fear and trepidation there. And uh, this guy, Brian, sits down next to one little girl who was just crying. He puts his arm around her, and he pulls her, pulls her up on his lap and holds her. And before long, he began to cry as well. He said, I looked down at her little green dress, and I noticed all these tear stains, but I couldn't tell whether they were hers or mine. And I listened to some people like, like some of you who sponsor kids through Compassion International or through World Vision, how you talk about those kids just like they're your own. I watched friends of mine who sponsor a fellow struggler in AA, just be available all hours of the day and love people with a humble, patient, unconditional type love. I see foster families opening up their homes to embrace a family in crisis. I see students standing up for, including those who have been bullied or made fun of. And when I I see that, I think to myself, they're seeing like Jesus sees. They're seeing in 3D. See, whatever you choose to do, Just get out in the community and put yourself in a position where you can actually see the needs, where you can observe injustice, where you can feel people's pain. Create some space for the Holy Spirit to move in your heart. Not everybody can travel great distances, but you can take the first step. You can maybe work in a food pantry or take a pet to a nursing home or swing a hammer on a habitat house or just donate somewhere generously. Cross socioeconomic lines. You may be going to like India or someplace, or you may just go across the cul-de-sac to serve an elderly neighbor. It just means getting up and doing something because the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear about our responsibility. In, in, in Psalm 82, it says, defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Jesus' brother James writes this in James chapter 1. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now, I love this from the very lips of God in Isaiah 58. He says, share your food with the hungry. 
and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then, then you do that, then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. I love that then. He's just saying when you get your eyes off yourself and you start to see the world through 3D, then your own salvation, your own healing, your own light begins to break through. Jesus' best friend, a guy named John, writes to a bunch of brand new Jesus followers, and he tenderly refers to them as little children. He says this in fourth chapter, he says, little children we love because he first loved us. If anybody says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. The kitchen smells like supper and the table's ready waiting and someone says they thought we ought to pray before we ate and would I thank the Lord for all he has so bountifully bestowed. But please don't pray too long because the meat is getting cold. On the other side of town, a mother sets another table for herself and several children just as well as she is able, but there's not too much because last night's man, he didn't pay so well. Will there be enough for breakfast? Well, it's really hard to tell. Am I passing by the man beside the road to Jericho? Have I cruelly snubbed the woman there as to the well I go? Am I my brother's keeper? Cup of water, did you say? Is the second mile outside my door or somewhere down the way? The news is over now. There's football on another station when at the door appears my aunt and half of our relation, and we all remark how nice to have the family here this way. It's our love that binds us all oh so close. We'd love to always stay. While in a dark and dingy room, a young girl eyes the walls around her. And she wonders if one soul would care if in three weeks they found her. All her life she's been rejected, never had an honest friend. Is it life or mere existence? Who would care if it should end? Am I passing by the man beside the road to Jericho? Have I cruelly snubbed the woman there as to the well I go? Am I my brother's keeper? Cup of water, did you say? Is a second mile outside my door or somewhere down the way? Well, the family's gone, it's quiet, and the bed is soft beneath me. But instead of sleeping dreams, my restless thoughts creep up to meet me. And somewhere in the distance, I hear hungry children cry. And a girl unloved, uncared for, brings a tear into my eye. If people saw me weeping, they think that I was mad. I tell them it's a nightmare. The dream I dreamed was bad. I must gain my self-control. Tomorrow's Sunday school. And so bloodshot eyes on a Sunday morning. Folks might talk a lot, you know. If a man loves not his brother, he is able now to see that he makes himself a liar when he says that he loves me. Little children, it's not thoughts or words that prove your love to all. If your love is not an action, then it isn't love at all. Love is a decision, and love is always a demonstration, and love is always, always the difference. That's the third D. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 where it starts, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, if I give all my money to the poor, but have not love. Even if I become a martyr for the faith, but have not love, I'm just a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. 
My life is just obnoxious noise because genuine love is what always makes the difference. It's a state of heart and mind. It's pure motivation. It's a different way to see the world. It's 3D love, and that always makes the difference. I keep this word from Brendan Manning in the margin of my Bible, and it's been stuck in my heart and head for many years now. He says, if we want to truly love, we must return again and again to the love of the great lover. If we want to truly love, then we must return again and again to the love of the great lover. I'm just telling you, when you know that you are loved, when you know the love of the great lover, it changes the way you see the world. When you know that you are unconditionally loved, it begins to flow out of you. That's why Paul prayed this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I did a little word study on the word translated grasp. It comes from the root that means to rust, decay, or eat all the way through. So he's saying here, I don't want you just to show up at church and intellectually learn some stuff about God's love. I want you to experience it. I want you to grasp it. I want you to let it eat all the way through you. Let his love be your security. Let his love be your hope. Let his love fill you with gratitude and peace and compassion. When you slip your hand into the nail-scarred hand of Jesus, you will finally know what love is like. And when you know the great love of the great lover, then, then you will be able to overflow on other people. So what are we called to do? What are we called to do? We are called to see what Jesus would see if he were looking through our eyes and respond as he would respond. That's what we're called to do, to see what Jesus would see if he were looking through our eyes and then respond as he would respond. It's about the heart, a heart that grasps the love of the Father and beats after the same things his heart beats after. It's about compassion. It's about spalakna. It's about seeing Jesus in the least of these. It's seeing people with a 3D difference-making love. I love this quote from Ian Watson. I've had it tacked up behind my desk for many years. It says, we live on a contaminated planet. It's contaminated on every level. I mean, it should have been quarantined from heaven. No reasonable God would go near it with a 10-foot pole. But Jesus is no reasonable God. He became a human being and took on your uncleanness and mine. But instead of the world infecting him, he infected the world. And with his immaculate infection, it's still spreading. What do you say we keep the infection spreading? Let's take off the blinders and love. Let's refuse to check out of this broken world. Let's refuse to allow the needs of other people just to stay foggy out there in the distance. Let's refuse to go into isolation. Let's keep taking the risks that love requires, opening up our homes and opening up our hearts and getting up close and seeing the way Jesus sees. And now these three remain, these big three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Father, thank you. Lord, I'm just so, uh, so grateful for your love. And it is my deepest prayer 
the same way Paul prayed that we would be able to grasp how wide and how high and how deep and how long your love is for us. I pray that somebody here today, somebody watching online today, would finally let that truth just eat all the way through them. That they would know that they are so deeply loved. Father, I, I know it's a challenge for us to love, but we'll never have a shot if we don't first internalize that we are loved by you. God, I pray that that would happen and we would overflow on other people the way Jesus overflowed on other people. Lord, help us to be aware, even before we leave here today, in the, in the parking lot, in a restaurant, or at school tomorrow, or work tomorrow, help us be aware of the needs around us, to be aware of your presence in our life, to hear your Holy Spirit speak to us saying, come on, do this or do that or go there or say this. I pray that love would motivate us. The first thing as we roll out of bed tomorrow morning, go, what, what does love require me today? What would love have me do today? I want that to be my highest goal today. Out of, out of everything on my to-do list, I want love to be first. And I want to be known as a person who just loves God and loves people. So, Lord, I just pray that we'd be sensitive to your Holy Spirit who's trying to get us to move through this world with the love of Jesus. If there's anything in us, God, that needs to be corrected in our vision, we give you permission to do that. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your deep, deep love for us. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus, the great lover. Amen.